Hello, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. This podcast is part of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network, and that's supported by Conexus. Conexus Credit Union is all about their members. Improving their financial well-being drives everything they do. And that's not just something they say. It's a promise that's delivered by over 900 employees across Saskatchewan. Their employees are members, too, and they've been there. So they're committed to making your money work for you. The banking industry needs to change, and Conexus is changing it for everyone because Conexus cares. Visit Conexus.ca to learn more. It was 1994, and a reluctant lead singer of a California ska rock band had just had her heart broken. Gwen Stefani had been in a relationship with a fellow No Doubt member and bass player Tony Canal almost since the band's inception. But after seven years as a couple... Bliss turned to breakup. Tony had called off the romantic side of the relationship, but oddly wanted to remain in the band. Gwen's main focus in her life was Tony. She was his girlfriend first and singer second. She had thoughts and dreams of settling down, marrying Tony, and having kids, and it all came crashing down. Now, Gwen and Tony had to manage being friends and bandmates, as No Doubt was still on the up and coming. No Doubt had released one album prior, their commercially disappointing self-titled debut, and they knew they needed something big as their follow-up. Now the group also had to navigate the awkward waters of two exes in the same band. But who knew that through her heartbreak, Stefani would discover something powerful, a side of her that she never saw before. The pain of the breakup had opened her songwriting to a whole other dimension. Maybe the songs could be an outlet for her pain. No Doubt's 1995 album, Tragic Kingdom, was the result. Gwen's sadness and confusion was expressed in the lyrics in songs like Don't Speak and Sunday Morning as her and Tony wrestled with their new roles as ex-boyfriend and girlfriend, but also as bandmates. And it turns out those songs that expressed so much pain related to a lot of people. Tragic Kingdom was a massive success, selling millions of copies, peaking at number one on the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart for nine weeks, and earning them two Grammy nominations. In an interview years later, Gwen talked about this life-changing time and how it unlocked a whole other side of her she didn't know she had, saying, quote, Before, I was really passive. All I cared about was being in love with my boyfriend. I didn't have any creative power, nothing. I don't know that person anymore. But I'd been really bad at school and didn't know what I would do. I just sang in my brother's band. But after the breakup, I just started writing all these songs, and suddenly I was, oh... I think I'm really good at this. Who knew that the pain and confusion, the heartbreak and awkwardness of ex-boyfriends and girlfriends remaining in the same band could result in such great art? Well, at least Gwen Stefani, Tony Cannell, and the rest of No Doubt could point to at least one success in the past, and No Doubt's issues look like a cakewalk in comparison. There was no blueprint for the 1970s pop rock band I want to talk about in this podcast, But just like Gwen, Tony, and the rest of No Doubt discovered, inner turmoil can be inspiring and lead to great art. And luckily for them, great art can lead to massive success. This is the story behind Fleetwood Mac and their 1977 album, Rumors. The stories behind some of the most famous albums in music history. It's Beyond the Beat with Jared Lennon. 
It was late 1975 and in the middle of a tour for the members of Fleetwood Mac. It was their first tour together with a new fresh lineup, and it was coming off of a surprisingly very successful album, their self-titled record from 1975. One of three main singer-songwriters in the group and guitarist, Lindsey Buckingham, was not in a good place personally. He was going through a breakup with his girlfriend of six years. His relationship was on the rocks, and he was having a tough time of it. That's understandable. A breakup is not that uncommon. But then again, most people don't have to remain bandmates with their ex-girlfriend. Lindsey Buckingham was going through a breakup with another singer and songwriter in the band, Stevie Nicks. So in the middle of this tour, the members of Fleetwood Mac decided to take a week off to relax and to start the early workings of a new album they knew they'd have to start recording in a few months. With the pain of breakup all he could think about, Lindsey sat down and started playing his guitar. He came up with a simple chunking rhythm over a basic pop chord progression, and with Stevie in the back of his mind, the first lyrics that came to him were, Loving you isn't the right thing to do. It was a stream of consciousness for Lindsay, and he felt like it was almost the start of a conversation he would have with Stevie at the time. He continued writing, How can I ever change things that I feel? If I could, maybe I'd give you my world. How can I? when you won't take it from me. That song would eventually turn into one of the most bitter but successful breakup songs ever recorded. It would turn into Go Your Own Way, the first single off of Fleetwood Mac's massively successful 1977 Rumors. And it spoke volumes of not only the place Lindsey Buckingham was at personally, but actually where every single member of Fleetwood Mac was at. Guitarist Lindsey Buckingham was asked to join British blues band Fleetwood Mac in 1974. Buckingham, along with his girlfriend Stevie Nicks, were part of their own rock group and had released their debut album titled Buckingham Nicks in 1973. It was a complete flop commercially, and both Lindsay and Stevie struggled to pay rent and keep themselves afloat while they pursued their dream in music. Mick Fleetwood, drummer and one of the founding members of Fleetwood Mac, was busy in 1974, evaluating recording studios for a future Fleetwood Mac album. Not only that, but he was keeping his eyes and ears open for a guitarist after Bob Welch left the band. Fleetwood was at Sound City Studios in Los Angeles one day and had house engineer Keith Olsen play him a track Olsen had recorded in the studio. The song was called Frozen Love and was off of the failed Buckingham Nicks album that Olsen helped produce. Fleetwood was taken aback by it and loved it. It wasn't Olsen's production though that got his attention, it was the guitar playing. Fleetwood asked who it was, Olsen said it was Buckingham Nicks, and it just so happened that the guitarist, Lindsay, was in that exact same studio that day, recording demos in a different room. Fleetwood and Lindsay were introduced, hit it off, and that was that. Two weeks later, Fleetwood called Buckingham up and told him that their guitarist Bob Welch had left and asked if Lindsay would join the band as their new guitarist. Buckingham agreed, but only on the condition that his music partner and girlfriend, Stevie Nicks, be included as well. Buckingham Nicks joined Fleetwood Mac on New Year's Eve 1974. 1975 and 76 were long years for the members of Fleetwood Mac. Even if they were touring behind a very successful album, the band's best-selling record to date since its inception in 1967. Buckingham and Nicks were new to the band, and it was quite apparent in the quick three months they used to record their self-titled album, also known as The White Album, that this new chemistry was something special. Fleetwood Mac was injected with fresh new blood 
and a new energy with Buckingham and Nicks now added. They also had a new pop identity, and the hits followed, with songs like Rhiannon, Say You Love Me, and Over My Head launching this former British blues band into pop superstardom. They toured relentlessly in support of the album, solidifying that musical chemistry even further, but it came at a cost to their personal lives. All five of them were going through breakups, and four of them with each other. Yeah, that's right. Not only was there two couples in the same band, something very rare in music, but they both fell apart in the same period. What are the chances of that? If a movie screenwriter wrote that in a script, you'd probably laugh it off. You wouldn't buy it. As the saying goes, truth is stranger than fiction. It was a rock and roll soap opera. In one tour, bassist John McVie and singer-songwriter and keyboardist Christine McVie separated. Buckingham and Nicks broke up after six years. Oh, and to boot, Mick Fleetwood, the father of two kids, was in the middle of divorce proceedings with his wife, just to add to the mix. It's hard in retrospect to separate your opinion on the album. I mean, it was so successful, it's basically the definition of adult contemporary rock. It's hard to look at it objectively and think, why the hell would they just not break up the band? What kept them going? It's a minor miracle that the band members were able to pull it together and record an album at all during this time. Never mind a great album. With so much drama, it would be easy to discount this effort as a waste, as if the album was destined for the discount bin. But it's possible, and I'd say more likely, that it was because of the turmoil that you know rumors as the seminal Fleetwood Mac album and a seminal album in rock history. In an interview at the time, Stevie Nicks summed up why the band might have dredged forward despite all the interpersonal issues, saying, quote, What was remarkable about the group's handling of the situation was the consideration its members seemed to show for each other's hurt feelings. Maybe an attitude that had more to do with a collective sense of family rather than a wish to stay together because we were on the brink of something enormously successful. One aspect of Fleetwood Mac that gets overlooked at is the writing. How rare is it that there are three writers in one band? With egos and song royalties and everything, it's common for a band to have one main songwriter. Usually there's only one person talented enough anyway. But Lindsay, Stevie, and Christine all brought their A-game for rumors. Stevie was writing to Lindsay, Lindsay was writing to Stevie, and Christine was writing to John McVie. John Lennon said it best, genius is pain. And if selling over 40 million copies worldwide is any indication, both genius and pain were ever-present for Fleetwood Mac as they spent most of 1976 in a recording studio. And so it was during that period of time when the relationships were falling apart right smack dab in the middle of a tour where they agreed to take a break from the road and to start the early workings of this future album that would become Rumors. And that's where Lindsay got the start on the song Go Your Own Way. Lindsay at the time was coming to terms with the fact that he may not be over Stevie, and at the same time, he was aware he needs to accept the breakup and move on. He was devastated by the breakup, and honestly pretty angry about it. So you get these more bitter lyrics in the Buckingham songs on the album, rather than the more morose songs from Stevie, and maybe the more optimistic songs from Christine. Eventually, the band finished the tour, and wanting to continue the momentum of their last successful album, got into the studio right away. In February of 1976, they decided to move away from their home bases, and to start recording at the Record Plant Studio in Sausalito, California, a half-an-hour drive over the Golden Gate Bridge from downtown San Francisco. 
They rented two places to live, which for Lindsay felt like the final nail in the coffin for his and Stevie's relationship. Lindsay thought that they might be able to repair the relationship by getting a place together while recording, but Stevie refused. Instead, one place housed Christine and Stevie, while the other housed the boys in the group. As they settled into the Sausalito studio, they began to work on some of the material they had going into the sessions. For Lindsay, it was that simple chunking guitar song written about Stevie. There's a lot of anger expressed from Lindsay in Go Your Own Way, and you can hear it in the eventual style of his vocals, the aggressiveness of the lead guitar, and definitely in the subject matter of the lyrics. There was a lot of resolve behind the subject matter, and Lindsay really felt it. He was exercising his hurt and found it a little bit cathartic to get that message out in the studio. Lindsay has said that he wasn't worried at all about trying to mask who he was talking about in his lyrics, and that wasn't the style in Fleetwood Mac anyway. I mean, really, how could they as a massive pop rock band in the spotlight? But it's got to be awkward bringing in all these personal songs and even asking Stevie in this song, for example, to sing background vocals on lyrics that are about her. One line in particular really hurts Stevie in Go Your Own Way. Upon listening back to the song, Nix demanded that Buckingham remove the lyrics, packing up, shacking up is all you want to do. She talked about it in an interview, saying, quote, I very much resented him telling the world that packing up, shacking up with different men was all I wanted to do. He knew it wasn't true. It was just an angry thing that he said. Every time those words would come on stage, I wanted to go over and kill him. He knew it, so he really pushed my buttons through that. It was like, I'll make you suffer for leaving me. And I did. Buckingham ultimately decided to keep those lyrics in the final song. Nix has said that this song is the hardest to sing live in concert with Lindsay, but it's a fan favorite, so she struggles through. As a kid, Stevie moved around a lot and was repeatedly uprooted because of her dad's career. It was tough for her, but it also set a bit of a life rhythm for her. Lindsay observed that Stevie was a bit uncomfortable with having certain parts of her life go on too long. So Lindsay wrote in the chorus, You can go your own way. You can call it another lonely day. As if to say, Stevie will continue finding herself being alone if she doesn't push herself to the next level in particular situations. With Rumors, they were trying to achieve a sound more raw and grittier than their previous album, but still very based in pop. So for Go Your Own Way, that was part of the decision to go away from Christine's typical beautiful piano textures and to use an organ in the background. It also probably influenced Lindsay's direction for Mick on the drums. Going in, Lindsay couldn't shake an idea for the rhythm section. He loved this different style of drumming and the pattern of a Rolling Stones song called Street Fighting Man. It does this irregular pattern in the verses where it goes from snare drum to the tom-toms back and forth. Lindsay showed Mick the pattern, but Mick couldn't play it. Fleetwood is very much a drummer from the heart. He isn't classically trained. He doesn't know the professional terminology. Plus, he has dyslexia. Instead, he plays with feel. What feels good and sounds good to him. So when Lindsay came to him with the idea, Fleetwood made it his own. Instead of having the beat being the snare and toms, he changed the toms to accent the beats and the kick drum to keep the beat. There's a story Lindsay Buckingham has told about the release of Go Your Own Way as a single and how one response to it got him worried. Lindsay was driving around Los Angeles right after its release and heard it come on the radio station. The DJ introduced the new song, played it, and got Lindsay excited. After the song faded out, the DJ said, That was the new Fleetwood Mac song, Go Your Own Way. I don't know about that one. The response upset Lindsay a little bit. So he called the radio station and they patched him to the DJ who was on the air at the time. 
Lindsay introduced himself and asked him what he wasn't sure about in the song. He responded by saying he couldn't find the beats in the complicated rhythm. And yeah, I could see that. He's got a point. But it's what makes this song sound so unique. It doesn't follow a regular simple pop format for the feel in the song, especially in the verses. There's almost like a call and response to the acoustic guitar and the vocal. Never mind the off-snare and tom pattern on the drums. It was an element to it, but Lindsay has said that the acoustic guitar in it is what he feels is the most important element of the song. Almost like the glue that holds the song together and keeps it in focus. Without it, you can't find the groove, and that acoustic guitar almost didn't make the record. It got added very late in the recording process. Go Your Own Way was released as a single in December of 1976, about two months before the album was released. The song's success and response gave the record label Warner Brothers their largest advanced sales of an album in their history, reaching about 800,000. It gave Fleetwood Mac their first top 10 hit in the United States and would spawn the success of the three singles that would come after it. Go Your Own Way was the first song Lindsay wrote where it was kind of an acceptance of the fact that there was a bigger picture beyond his own personal needs, that the differences between him and Stevie, as well as the other members, added up to something greater than the sum of the parts. The lyrical interplay in different songs between Buckingham and Nicks wasn't conscious. It was just written from what was going on at the time from each member's perspective, but it is obviously revealing. For example, let's look at specific lyrics from different songs from Lindsay and Stevie. In Secondhand News, Lindsay writes, I know I got nothing on you. I know there's nothing to do. When times go bad and you can't get enough, won't you lay me down in the tall grass and let me do my stuff? And now to Stevie in the song Dreams. Now here you go again. You say you want your freedom. Well, who am I to keep you down? It's only right that you should play the way you feel it. And then back to Lindsay with Go Your Own Way. If I could, maybe I'd give you my world. How can I when you won't take it from me? Go Your Own Way was Lindsay's piece on the breakup, his take, but he wasn't the only songwriter in that relationship. And that leads us to the second single off the album, written by Lindsay's now ex-girlfriend, Stevie Nicks. And that was to be a song called Dreams, a song that Stevie has called a twin to Lindsay's Go Your Own Way. Stevie would later compare hers and Lindsay's songs about their relationship as her aiming at being more philosophical, while Lindsay was just mad, and Dreams is a good example. Stevie wrote this song in early 1976 while at the record plant studio in Sausalito. She would say in an interview after that it basically came from boredom in the studio. She was the only member who didn't play an instrument, meaning she had a lot of studio time waiting around while the other members added and changed parts to the songs already recorded. So she left, saying, quote, One day when I wasn't required in the main studio, I took a Fender Rhodes piano and went into another studio that was said to belong to Sly Stone of Sly and the Family Stone. It was a black and red room with a sunken pit in the middle where there was a piano and a big black velvet bed with Victorian drapes. I sat down on the bed with my keyboard in front of me. Nix continues, saying she came up with a simple three-chord repeated riff over an uncharacteristically dancey groove, saying, quote, I found a drum pattern, switched my little cassette player on, and wrote dreams in about ten minutes. Right away, I liked the fact that I was doing something with a dance beat, because that made it a little unusual for me. When you hear the lyrics, it's unmistakably a Stevie Nicks song. At this point in the band's history, Stevie was just beginning to emerge as a star in the group, but it wasn't quite so obvious yet. Stevie had written the biggest hit off their previous album with Rhiannon, 
and it was in their live shows that the song would wind up being a highlight, with Stevie taking charge. She started doing what she's famous for now with her mystical stage persona, dressing in all black, dancing around, all topped by her great distinctive voice. Stevie brought Fleetwood Mac something it had always lacked, a captivating front person. She was already being heralded as the most vivacious woman in rock, not bad for less than a year into her new gig. And she wasn't even supposed to be in Fleetwood Mac. She was just the extra baggage that came with Lindsay joining the band. They needed a guitarist. They didn't need another girl singer. In an interview, Stevie would later commend the rest of the Fleetwood Mac members for being so welcoming to her, saying, quote, They made me feel wonderful, and I fell madly in love with all of them, immediately, even though I knew in my heart they didn't need me. So I'd try to be good and maybe find a way to be needed there. I didn't know what else to do. She continued on saying, quote, They understood I felt this way, and they were real careful and never made me feel unwanted. Christine very willingly gave me the stage, which I thought was very cool for a woman to say, Oh, she's five years younger than me, and I've worked ten years on the road killing myself, and here she is, our new front woman. It was incredibly big of Christine to just move out of the way, because I do tend to kind of animate around, and I drive Chris nuts. In fact, Stevie and Christine shared a room on the road during that first tour, solidifying their bond off stage. And when they recorded rumors, they lived away from the men in the band and lived in condos in the same building together. During rumors, they supported each other during the rough emotional times for both of them. They were two women who had each other alone in a man's world, as Stevie would later say. When the recording of rumors began, Stevie was 27 years old, and although she gained much confidence from their last album, a lot of people still viewed her as the weakest link in the band. She was looked at as the sweet hippie chick who didn't have a lot of technical knowledge about music and instrumentation, but she defied those perceptions on rumors and took the confidence she gained from the previous album and tour and really solidified her new place as an important piece of the band. And you can hear it in dreams. The lyrics range from crystal visions, cleansing rains, and telltale heartbeats, but as far as a Stevie Nicks song goes, there's still some bitterness to it. Her opening lines are, Now here you go again, you say you want your freedom. Well, who am I to keep you down? And she comforts herself a little bit by writing about Lindsay's future regret, writing, The stillness of remembering what you had and what you lost, and what you had and what you lost. What's kind of cool in this song is how Lindsay almost answers Stevie's vocal with his guitar. Stevie sings these lyrics about Lindsay being heartbroken in the future, and at the end of each phrase, Lindsay responds on the guitar with an effect that almost mimics a weeping sound. For the chorus, Stevie writes a collection of different metaphors to describe their troubled relationship and how she felt she was treated by Lindsay, writing, Thunder only happens when it's raining. Players only love you when they're playing. Say, woman, they will come and they will go. When the rain washes you clean, you'll know. Almost as soon as she wrote the song, Nix showed it to the band, but the reaction was less than enthusiastic. Christine later said that she didn't think much of it first, saying, quote, When Stevie first played it for me on the piano, it was just three chords and one note in the left hand. I thought, this is really boring. Christine flipped on the matter later, however, when Lindsay Buckingham took a shot at saving the song, saying, quote, He fashioned three sections out of identical chords, making each section sound completely different. He created the impression that there's a thread running through the whole thing. Stevie would later say in the liner notes of the rumor reissue in 2013, 
Quote, even though Go Your Own Way was a little angry, it was also honest. So then I wrote Dreams. And because I'm the chiffony chick who believes in fairies and angels, and Lindsay is a hardcore guy, it comes out differently. Lindsay is saying, go ahead and date other men and go live your crappy life. And I'm singing about the rain washing you clean. We were coming at it from opposite angles, but we were really saying the exact same thing. Nix remembered the first time she showed Lindsay the song, saying, quote, I walked in and handed a cassette of the song to Lindsay. It was a rough take, just me singing solo and playing piano. Even though he was mad with me at the time, Lindsay played it and then looked up at me and smiled. What was going on between us was sad. We were couples who couldn't make it through. But as musicians, we still respected each other and we got some brilliant songs out of it. As soon as Lindsay heard it, he immediately grabbed an acoustic guitar and started playing along, and it added a nice color to it. As Rumors producer Ken Kaye explains in his book Making Rumors, that's how the songs were made for the album. You'd hear an early take of a song and hear it one way with one instrument, and then you'd add another instrument, and the whole vibe of the song changes. And that's a major reason it took so long to record Rumors. They were looking for the perfect part to complement each instrument in the songs. It was as Dreams was pretty much recorded and done when they all agreed that the tempo of the song wasn't hypnotic enough. So they got Mick to play 8 bars of the drums perfectly, or about 16 seconds of it, and they looped it and repeated it for the rest of the verses. And it worked. They added a phaser to the hi-hat to make it stand out more, and it gave the song a hypnotic feel. Stevie also relentlessly tried to improve her vocals on it. She kept recording it over and over, experimenting by singing it high on weed, then with cocaine, but nothing ever matched the emotion and mood of her original demo vocal take she had during the first time she sung it. So interestingly, they ended up using her original demo in the finished product. Dreams was released as the second single off of Rumors on March 24, 1977. It's the highest charting song Fleetwood Mac has ever released, peaking at number one on the Hot 100. Now, I've talked a lot about the dynamic between Lindsay and Stevie, but I'm going to shift gears to the other major breakup in the band, one that influenced the music on rumors just as much as Lindsay and Stevie, and that was the divorce between bassist John McVie and keyboardist, singer, and songwriter Christine McVie. Christine had been in the trenches with Fleetwood Mac for quite a while now, joining them when they were still a full-fledged blues band in 1970. Up to that point, Fleetwood Mac had been a band for three years, releasing four albums with pretty good success in their native Britain. In 1968, Christine was in another blues band called Chicken Shack. They toured a little bit with Fleetwood Mac, and that's where she ran into the bassist in Fleetwood Mac, John McVie. They had a brief romance going out for a short time before John left to go on Fleetwood Mac's first U.S. tour. Their relationship proved to be more than just a short fling, and as soon as John got back, he proposed, and they were married ten days later. Christine thought she wanted the stable home life to go with her new marriage, so she quit the band she was in, Chicken Shack, and quit music altogether to become a full-time housewife. But she soon got tired of washing dishes, and in August of 1970, joined her husband's band following Peter Green's departure. Fleetwood Mac would spend the next four years relentlessly touring and in the studio recording, and it was a rocky time. They would produce six albums in that span, but all failed to recapture the success the band saw in the early years. It was during this time that they went through a revolving door of another six members, mostly guitarists and singers, but it wasn't until the band regrouped and moved to California in 1974 
where they would find reason for optimism. Once a star-crossed, guitar-dominated cult blues band, Fleetwood Mac had now transformed into a pop-rock outfit with the addition of two key band members later that year, guitarist Lindsey Buckingham and singer Stevie Nicks. It would eventually lead to their 1975 self-titled release, where they finally got their big break with mainstream success. Through all this time in the trenches and being the only female in the band before Stevie, Christine developed a sort of one-of-the-guys sensibility. She had a very sharp tongue, drank and smoked up a storm, but when it came to performing, she was the ultimate professional, playing killer keys and singing great hooks. Rumors producer Ken Kaye has called her quite possibly the queen of English blues. Through all this time, through all these ups and downs, Christine and John stayed together. But it was just as Lindsay and Stevie were realizing they weren't right for each other that the relationship between John and Christine started to crumble. Christine would later say in an interview, quote, We were very happy for three years, and then the strain of me being in the same band started to take its toll. When you're in the same band as somebody, you're seeing them 24 hours a day, and you start to see an awful lot of the bad side. There's a lot of drinking, and John is not the most pleasant of people when he's drunk. Very belligerent. I was seeing more Hyde than Jekyll. It was during that tour where Christine began an affair with a guy by the name of Curry Grant, who happened to be the band's lighting director. Christine would later admit that she knew that the affair with Grant was irresponsible, but she felt she needed to do something for her own sanity. That affair happened at a time as the band prepared to write rumors, and so inspired by this new relationship, these new positive feelings Christine felt as she started to drift away from John and towards Grant, she thought of writing a love song. That song eventually turned into You Make Love and Fun. And it's simply that, an optimistic love song about the feelings had when in a new relationship. And if you look at Christine and where she was in her life now at the age of 33, maybe it was just an expression of being free after a long, tough marriage, letting herself explore that freedom sexually. In one verse, Christine seems optimistic about this new relationship, writing, Don't, don't break the spell. It would be different, and you know it will. You, you make love and fun, and I don't have to tell you, but you're the only one. And then in the chorus, Christine sings, I never did believe in miracles, but of a feeling it's time to try. I never did believe in the ways of magic, but I'm beginning to wonder why. Obviously, it was an awkward time to write a love song just after a divorce with a fellow band member, so she never told John who it was really about. Instead, she said it was about her dog. But John knew of the affair and was a little hypocritical as they tried to move on from each other. John had a new girlfriend by the name of Sandra, who would come by the studio and hang out with the band at times. Surprisingly, Christine didn't mind even becoming friends with Sandra. Maybe she felt guilty over the affair. But whenever Christine brought up the idea of bringing her new man around, Curry Grant, John would flip out. So they had to hide from John whenever he'd come around. They were in love and still wanted to see each other. There's one story where Curry was wanting to see Christine in the studio. As he walked in through booth two towards the control room, producer Ken Kaye saw him approaching, and with John in the control room as well, waved Curry off frantically, slashing across his own neck to warn him that the coast wasn't clear. Just at that moment, John got up and decided to go out into the studio to get ready to play. Kaye's eyes went wide, thinking John and Curry would run into each other and start something ugly. But Curry managed to escape unseen and then came around the other way through booth one to the control room that way and gave Christine a big kiss. It was like a scene out of a Marx Brothers movie, 
and just goes to show the tightrope these couples had to walk on to keep things cordial throughout the recording process. One thing you notice on You Make Love and Fun and on the whole album is the harmonies. Lindsay and Stevie could wrap their voices around each other so well after years of practicing, and what's amazing is how quickly they found Christine's voice to fit in with those two. Stevie's powerful, distinctly nasal vocals blended beautifully with Christine's darker toned voice. You can imagine the turmoil between the members at the time, but especially for Lindsay and Stevie, yet they set it all aside to get the work done. A lot of the time, they'd do harmonies and backup vocals together, they'd be in a small room, looking each other in the eye, often singing lyrics that are about each other, and through all of it, came out with amazing vocals. Imagine if you had to go to work every day and see an ex of yours, and not only see them, but you have to work with them, ask them to do things for you, and be friendly to them for the sake of the workplace and for your co-workers. Producer Ken Kaye has said in an interview that he distinctly remembers the fights that would result when it was time for harmonies to be recorded, saying, quote, I remember when we were doing background vocals, Stevie and Lindsay were having an argument. Vicious name-calling. You motherfucker this, you fucking bastard that. Back and forth it went. The tape would start rolling, and then they'd sing. You make love and fun. Just beautiful two little angels. The tape would stop, and they'd be calling each other names again. They didn't miss a beat. Besides the harmonies, it's the clavinet that really stands out in the verses and is sort of the signature of You Make Love and Fun. It gives it that 70s vibe to it, what Stevie Wonder made famous in his song Superstition. You Make Love and Fun was the fourth and final single off of Rumors and became the fourth top 10 hit off the album, peaking at number 9 on the US Billboard Hot 100. It also became a concert staple for the entirety of Christine's time with the band, only stopping between 1997 and 2014 when she left the band for a while. With Lindsay and Stevie, you got songs mostly written about the same thing, each other and the fallout of the relationship. But Christine varied on her songwriting topics, even as she was experiencing the same heartbreak as her songwriting companions. One song on the album that showed that variance was Oh Daddy, the tenth song on Rumors, and not released as a widespread single, but interestingly released as a single in Japan. The song is about Mick Fleetwood and his relationship with his wife at the time, Jenny. His nickname within the band was Daddy because of the father figure role he seemed to play within the members of the group. When times were tough, when the band was at its darkest point between the breakups and the drama, Mick would keep everything centered and in focus. The six foot six, long haired, bearded man was the gel and the glue in Fleetwood Mac. When he spoke, everyone stopped and listened. And it was a brave attitude as the figurehead in the band, as Mick had problems of his own. As the father of two kids, he was in the middle of divorce proceedings with his wife, Jenny, after she cheated on him with Mick's best friend. But it wasn't like Mick was totally innocent. Mick was a womanizer and a workaholic, and he refused to change his ways. It's not like Fleetwood Mac needed any more drama at the time, but he kept his head above water. In the classic album's documentary, Mick talked about this Christine song written about him, Oh Daddy, saying, quote, It's one of my favorite songs that she's ever recorded. I think it's a fantastic song, and I was the only father in the band at that point. I like to play and I like to be surrounded by people. Being a drummer, I need inherently to have a band to play with. And I'm not useless, but I'm relatively useless without that. So it's no wonder, why would you not want to keep something going forward? Mick Fleetwood was recruited to join Fleetwood Mac back in 1967 by Peter Green. It's odd to say that Mick was recruited to join a band that shares his namesake, but it was actually Green who came up with the name Fleetwood Mac. Peter Green was the guitarist in another blues band called John Mayle and the Blues Breakers at the time. 
Green had gained recognition with how well he fit into the Blues Breakers and how much he deflected attention from the absence of their old guitarist, Eric Clapton. In the spring of 67, Mail was kind enough to give his guitarist free studio time, but Green needed some help laying the tracks down. For the rhythm section, Green recruited current Blues Breakers bass player John McVie and former Blues Breakers drummer Mick Fleetwood. Four songs were recorded in those sessions, including one instrumental Green called Fleetwood Mac, named after the rhythm section. Green was so excited with the product that he immediately approached McVie and Fleetwood with the idea of starting their own band. Fleetwood, looking for work, said yes right off the bat, but it took a few months of convincing for McVie to finally join after becoming increasingly frustrated in the Blues Breakers. Green enticed McVie to join by telling him they'd name the group after him and Fleetwood. Noted slide guitarist Jeremy Spencer soon joined the group as well, and next thing you know, Fleetwood Mac was releasing their self-titled debut album in February of 1968. And it went on to be huge in Britain, even topping the Beatles' White Album on the charts at one point. Eventually, Peter Green left the band, the band failed to recapture the success of their first album, and they were now without their clear-cut leader in Peter Green. Christina joined the band by this time, and so they carried on, with mixed guidance being the rock in the band, the so-called daddy, they pushed through these tough times in the early 70s to eventually get the success with their first album with Buckingham and Nicks, and now up to recording what would become Mick's 11th album with the band, Rumors. In the classic albums documentary, Stevie Nicks explained how important Mick was to Fleetwood Mac, saying, quote, I think it's his heart's desire. It's the thing he loves the most, and without it, Mick doesn't feel good. For all the rest of us, there's been times, and lots of times, where we really were ready to never see each other again, and Mick is the one that he would never be happy that way. It's really his family. And so Christine pays homage to Mick a little bit in her song, Oh Daddy. The song has a dark tone to it, one of the saddest songs on Rumours. It's interesting that Christine says the song was inspired by Mick, because she talks so positively about him in interviews, yet the song is so morose. Maybe she was trying to put herself in Mick's wife's shoes as they go through their divorce. Christine's character in the song expresses confusion over why this person stays with her because she doesn't think she's a good person and has a lack of self-worth. But maybe it's Christine's way of expressing thanks to Mick that he's kept the band going even in the tough times and how she's been dependent on him for that. She writes in the song, Oh daddy, you soothe me with your smile. You're letting me know you're the best thing in my life. Oh daddy, if I can make you see, if there's been a fool around, then it's gotta be me. What's interesting is that both Lindsay Buckingham's former girlfriend Carol Ann Harris and Stevie Nicks biographer Zoe Howe have written that the song was originally written for the band's lighting director, the guy Christine was dating after John. Both Harris and Howe say Christine only later claimed that the song was written for Fleetwood. That sounds more accurate to me. I mean, in the bridge of the song, Christine writes, Why are you right when I'm so wrong? I'm so weak, but you're so strong. Everything you do is just alright, and I can't walk away from you, baby, if I tried. I don't know, I guess you have to leave it up for interpretation. I could see Christine getting the original idea for Oh Daddy on writing a song about Mick, and then taking it sideways from there and writing about something more universal. One cool note on the song, near the end of one take, Christine hit random notes on her keyboard to get the attention of the engineers in the control room. The band liked it so much they opted to keep these unplanned additions in the finished song. The song was played consistently on the Rumors and Tusk tours to follow, and then resurfaced during the dance era in 1997, only to be dropped from their main live set list again. Lindsay's acoustic guitar really stands out in the song, 
and his unique style of playing. An interesting thing about Lindsay as a guitar player is his finger picking. He never uses a pick, something not uncommon in the folk music world, but very rare in the loud, intense rock side of things. To compensate for the volume difference between the pick and fingers, Lindsay developed a style to play more than one string at a time using the backs of his fingernails, instead of the folk style mostly playing one string with the ends of the finger. This unusual style came to Lindsay when he was young, and he had come down with a sickness that forced him bedridden for six months. To occupy his time, Lindsay played guitar, but because he was so sick and weak, he could only do it while laying down. He couldn't force himself upwards to play guitar in a standard fashion, so he developed a hybrid downward picking style. Lindsay's guitar is his best friend. In his younger years, you'd rarely see him not noodling around his guitar. As he got more comfortable playing on the guitar, Lindsay started combining his thumb in his playing, similar to banjo picking, where his thumb can play the bass line on the lower strings while his first three fingers create the rhythms. Mick has said about him, quote, Lindsay is like having three guitar players. He's got all these fingers and counter melodies and bass lines going on. It's wild. If you want to see a great example of this, go on YouTube and search for Lindsay doing a live rendition of the Fleetwood Mac song, Big Love. It was recorded quite differently in the studio, but the live version encompasses Lindsay's guitar style with his intensity. And his intensity is what gave Fleetwood Mac its grit. It prevented Fleetwood Mac from becoming the candy floss straightaway pop band that ABBA was at the time but they still had the pop hooks and vocal trio harmonies. Critics praise two main aspects of the Rumors album and really point to these two factors as to why it's sold so well. One is the harmonies between Christine, Stevie, and Lindsay. It's a trademark harmony blend that so many people associate with the band. As Lindsay has said in an interview, that harmony's sound was pretty apparent right from the get-go when they joined the band. Saying, quote, as singers, Stevie and I are both on the nasal side, which works really well in a two-part Appalachian kind of harmony style. And Christine has this very round, fluty voice that warmed up the whole thing. The other aspect to Rumors that stands out is its production quality. Lindsay had really taken control over the production side of things by this point, especially as it was his second album with Fleetwood Mac, and one where he was much more comfortable taking charge. It actually rubbed John the wrong way. John wasn't used to having some guy in the band telling him to simplify his bass on Go Your Own Way or Secondhand News, for example. Lindsay would later say, quote, I came in as the new kid on the block, but I was also the kid with the ideas, and so John and I used to butt heads quite a bit. It took me a long time to appreciate his approach. John later said that, quote, We definitely butted heads, as it were, but it was never an ego thing. It was always whatever came out was for the betterment of the song. Lindsay's take on the production side of things maybe sparked this resurgence in popularity for Fleetwood Mac. Mick, Christine, and John all came from a blues background, where its style is more improvisational, and maybe lends itself more to live performances, more feel, more emotion. But Lindsay really understood the craft of record making, to get what's in his head onto tape. With a super tight blues-based rhythm section of John on bass and Mick on drums, Lindsay set out to make a pop record with rumors. It was during this time spent at the second studio where Lindsay naturally started taking more control in the band. After spending three odd months recording at the record plant in Sausalito, the band took some time off, played a few shows, before getting back to their home bases in Los Angeles. By mid-May, they moved into a new studio, Wally Hyder Studios in Hollywood, to do overdubs and mixing, kind of the finishing touches on the songs. As they settled in, Lindsay suggested the rest of the band members take some time off and go on vacation and let him worry about the overdubs. 
Him and the engineers and producers would be doing most of the work anyway. And so the rest of the group went on vacation. After a couple of weeks, Mick and John were the first to arrive back, and they liked the work that had been done in the weeks they were gone, the little subtleties that Lindsay had added to the songs. In Dreams, the acoustic guitar for the rhythm and the electric guitar in the chorus, the dobro parts and Gold Dust Woman with more edge and reverb, but he also had ideas for the drums and bass. At that time, the practice within Fleetwood Mac was to verbally communicate their ideas to each other, but not to step on anyone's toes and push too hard. For example, Lindsay tried to explain to Mick the punk rock drum fill ideas he had for the chorus in secondhand news, or to talk to John about playing a simpler but more aggressive bass line in that same song. But Lindsay was no diplomat. It was for those above examples where both Mick and John threw up their hands and just let Lindsay do the parts himself. He had the capabilities, and either Lindsay didn't explain what was in his head well enough, or Mick and John just simply couldn't please him. That was the first example of this happening, and it was now out in the open. Producer Ken Kaye wrote in Making Rumors that Lindsay seemed relieved that he was now free to play other people's parts. It would lead to tough times in the years ahead between Lindsay and the rest of the band members, but at that time, Kaye says there was no doubt Lindsay pushed the rest of the band to get the most out of the songs. Lindsay is no doubt extremely talented at what he does, but he isn't always aware of the personal damage that determination and drive inflicts on the other people around him. Kaye has said that creatively, Lindsay was the band member who had the most conflict with others. Kaye recounts one story in his book Making Rumors, where they were recording the guitar solo in Go Your Own Way. There were already months in a recording rumors, it was now July of 1976, and they were on their third studio at the time, this one called Criteria in Miami, Florida. As one of those studio days dragged on, Lindsay kept re-recording the Go Your Own Way solo, exploring new ideas and finding new potential in each pass he'd make. As Kaye writes, Lindsay's vibe was getting more aggressive as the day went on. By the way, he mentions Richard Dashut, the other co-producer of Rumors, who in the story is sitting with Kaye in the studio. When Kaye writes he, it's about Lindsay. Kaye writes, quote, He didn't want to wait for anything. I can do better than that, he said after one take. I can do better. Tape over that last one. He was asking me to record over what I thought was a really nice take. Are you sure? I asked. That was really great. Frustrated, he shouted, no, go over it. Lindsay, are you sure? He stared at me through the studio glass, then firmly, yes. I looked at Richard. He nodded in agreement. I said okay, and I recorded over the previous guitar solo. Lindsay played one more and then asked... Play me that one from before. I think I liked it better. Richard and I looked at each other and I replied, We just went over that one. Remember? You told me to. You did what? Lindsay demanded. His face turned bright red and the veins in his neck began to throb. Then he put his guitar down and charged into the control room, approaching me from the front while I was in the control booth seat. Lindsay placed both of his hands around my neck. You're an idiot! Lindsay screamed at me, his hands tightening around my throat. I was in an engineer's chair that swivels and tilts back. Lindsay had pushed me all the way back in my seat, and his hands could have crushed my windpipe. At that moment, time slowed down for me. I didn't feel fear or anger. I just thought that Lindsay was being really stupid, and I felt so regretful that he could so quickly cross the line with me after all we'd been through. You can tell that Lindsay really put his heart and soul into Fleetwood Mac. He'd spend hours scrutinizing over the quality of the previous day's track without holding back any opinions. 
It was the same obsession and determination that it took to spend more than 300 days a year on the road playing to half-empty dive bars as he was coming up on the music scene. And it's that work ethic that Kaye holds Lindsay largely responsible for launching Fleetwood Mac into the stratosphere, but also to the sometimes destructive vibe within the band. And that leads us to the next song on the album, Never Going Back Again. It's an example of the attention to detail Lindsay put into his songs and the amount of effort everyone put in during the rumors sessions, including the producers. Never Going Back Again is a solo acoustic ballad. When you hear it, it sounds simple. Just Lindsay and his guitar, a pretty little song, no bass, no drums or keyboards. But the quick two-minute little song actually took a full two days to record. Producer Ken Kaye says they had a short window of time where they could take full advantage of how good and bright the acoustic guitar would sound saying, quote, I noticed that any time he played, there was a big difference in how bright his strings sounded after just 20 minutes. So I said, can we restring your guitar every 20 minutes? I wanted to get the best sound on every one of his picking parts. He said, sure. It took a long time to nail everything, all day actually, and I'm sure the roadies wanted to kill me. Restringing the guitar three times every hour was a bitch. But Lindsay had lots of parts on the song, and each one sounded magnificent, and it did. The only problem was, when Lindsay went to sing he realized that he played all of his guitar parts in the wrong key. So he recorded everything all over again the next day, dispensing with the changing of guitar strings. We had to lose all of that so we could get Lindsay singing in the right key. This period of time in the mid-70s was one of the most profitable eras for the record industry and the labels. So they allowed things like this to happen. It was the era where Led Zeppelin had their own airplane, where any meeting with a record label was kicked off with a mountain of cocaine, and where if you showed any promise, record labels would pay hand over fist whatever you needed to record an album to make it successful. Obviously, the excess was pretty extreme, but it really allowed plenty of time and money for artists to finish an album properly. It's what's missing from the music industry today, where the record labels force artists to finish albums too soon, and they don't get to fully flesh out the potential in some of the songs. Rumors would eventually take a full year to record, a full year of expensive recording studios where the record label didn't really know what was going on. At one point, the band reportedly required four days, nine pianos, and three tuners to find a suitable instrument for Christine McVie. For the song The Chain, co-producer Ken Kaye said he almost got fired because they spent five days on drum sounds alone. And Fleetwood Mac's writing style didn't help the budget either. They mostly wrote in the studio. Lindsay was a massive fan of the Beatles and they liked that approach to songwriting having a general idea, and then going into the studio and letting the spontaneity happen. That's where you capture the magic. And with the troubles and dramas of the personal lives of the band members, never mind the partying and drug use, they were a bit distracted from just putting their heads down and getting the work done. But as Lindsay said in the classic album's documentary, they had built trust from the success of their previous album, and it was what Fleetwood Mac needed at the time, saying, quote, You really have to address it in terms of the times, and the times were just a lot crazier. There was a sense of expansiveness in the business, of anything being possible, of budgets not being important, and certainly there was a subculture of drugs that was considered almost the norm in the business back then, as opposed to today, where it's a bit more of an aberration. He goes on saying, quote, That was sort of the last period of time when maybe there was a kind of us-and-them feeling, of an establishment versus anti-establishment. It was grinding to a halt as the business got tighter, but in the mid-70s, there was a sense that you could do no wrong. Never Going Back Again was written near the end of the making of Rumors, and at a time when Stevie and Lindsay had solidified their breakup more fully. 
Lindsay had actually met another woman and started a little romance, and it never ended up being anything serious, but it put some wind in Lindsay's sails, allowing him to move on from Stevie a little more and giving him more confidence moving forward. Lindsay would later say that it was a naive song, a song about the illusion of thinking that sadness will never occur again once content with life. And just like Go Your Own Way, there's bitterness in the lyrics towards Stevie, despite how beautiful it sounds. The lyrics, you don't know what it means to win, is like he's challenging her, saying that she doesn't understand how to be happy, how to love, and that he's found someone who does. In the chorus, he sings, been down one time, been down two times, I'm never going back again. Obviously about his on and off again relationship with Stevie, and he ends with, come around and see me again. Maybe as if he's doing so well now, he thinks Stevie could pick up some relationship pointers from him. The song has a very 70s vibe to it with the double-tracked acoustic guitars. Interestingly, Lindsay harmonizes with himself instead of using Nick's or Christine, one of the songs without using the big harmonies. Maybe they were just going for a nice change of pace to give it that chill vibe. Another song that exemplifies the drugs in excess on rumors is Gold Dust Woman. And it wasn't because of the production of the song, but actually the lyrics this time. Gold Dust Woman is one of the few songs on rumors not mainly about the breakups. The Stevie Nicks song was mostly about drugs, and more specifically, cocaine. Stevie had written the song a couple years prior to the rumors sessions, when she didn't do any drugs, but when she was around the drug scene in LA. You can't talk about rumors without talking about cocaine. In his biography, Mick Fleetwood wrote that cocaine played such a major role in the production of Rumors that the band seriously considered thanking their drug dealer in the album credits. Producer Ken K.A. says Mick was the worst drug influencer on everyone because he believed that the drug-infused late nights would produce genius in the music, calling them transcensions. He had a phrase he'd repeat from Robert Frost, The woods are lonely, dark and deep, and we have miles to go before we sleep. The people around the studio started to speak that phrase to Mick, and when he'd hear it, he'd go into a trance-like state and reach into his pocket and pull out a tiny bottle of Coke and share it with everyone. At one point, they were starting the sessions at 8pm and working until 8am the next morning. Stevie Nicks has said that Coke was less a pleasure and more a necessity during rumors. She said it got them through fatigue during the grueling multi-hour sessions and the torturous emotions, saying, quote, I don't think I've ever been so tired in my whole life as I was when we were doing that. It was shocking me, the whole rock and roll life. It was really heavy, and it was so much work, and it was every day intense. Being in Fleetwood Mac is like being in the army. It was like, you have to be there, you have to be on time, and even if there's nothing you have to do, you have to be there. So Gold Dust Woman was really my kind of symbolic look at somebody going through a bad relationship and doing a lot of drugs and trying to just make it. The opening lyrics make it quite clear, with Stevie writing... Rock on, gold dust woman, take your silver spoon, dig your grave. And in the chorus, she compares the positives and negatives of cocaine to the relationship she had with Lindsay, about a dark sexual obsession and a drug rush, almost as if they're the same addiction, writing, Did she make you cry? Make you break down? Shatter your illusions of love? Stevie writes a great line about the confusion she has as one of the biggest pop stars in the world at the time, someone who has all this power thrust upon them all of a sudden, but how it still doesn't improve her romantic relationships at all. Writing, Rulers make bad lovers, you better put your kingdom up for sale. The song is over woozy phased guitars, it's very moody and dark, and the band members and producers used a lot of subtle instruments to set the tone of the song, to drive the mood home. 
They used an electric harpsichord with a jet phaser to create the cool whooshing sound. Stevie did a coyote-like howling at the end that you can hear in the background, and they even got Mick to shatter a bunch of glass to accentuate Stevie's vocals in the song. Stevie has country music in her background, and maybe that influenced the country feel to the song. Stevie's grandfather, Aaron Jesnicks, was actually a struggling country honky-tonk singer and taught Stevie how to sing when she was a little girl. Her grandfather lived out of two trailers in the Arizona mountains, and he'd play his guitar, fiddle, and harmonica at local dive bars in the area and would take Stevie with him when she was just five years old. According to engineer Chris Morris, the song took about 20 or 30 takes for Stevie to get the vocal right. Stevie needed a lot of power and an equal measure of feeling to perform her vocals, and so it took a whole night to get it done. A journalist for Crawdaddy Magazine was in the studio that night and described the scene in an article, writing that she did her first take standing in a fully lit studio, but as take followed take, Stevie gradually withdrew. The lights were turned down, a chair was brought in, and after 40 minutes, she was barely visible in the darkness as she huddled in her chair next to a stash of Kleenex, a Vicks inhaler, a bottle of mineral water, and a box of lozenges. Stevie achieved full command and confidence in the material, and by the end of the session, she sang the song straight through, nailing it perfectly. Nick still performs Gold Dust Woman live with an interpretive dance, saying, quote, It's me being some of the drug addicts I knew, and probably being myself too, just being that girl lost on the streets, freaked out with no idea how to find her way. The next song I want to talk about on the album is probably the most positive song about divorce you'll ever hear. You might know it as Bill Clinton's theme song for his presidential race. It's the third single off the album, the massive hit Don't Stop. Don't Stop is a Christine McVie song. She wrote it as an optimistic look on the future after seven plus years of being married to John. Mick Fleetwood said it was Christine's way of saying to John, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Christine put it in a different way, saying, quote, Don't Stop was just a feeling. It seemed like a pleasant revelation to have. It would make a great song for an insurance company, but I'm definitely not a pessimist. I'm basically a love song writer. You can't help but feel a little inspired listening to these lyrics. Christine writes simply and about forgetting the past and moving on. The song starts in the first verse with the lyrics, If you wake up and don't want to smile, if it takes just a little while, open your eyes and look at the day, you'll see things in a different way. And then in the chorus, don't stop thinking about tomorrow, don't stop, it'll soon be here. It will be better than before, yesterday's gone, yesterday's gone. It's quite obviously directed at John, and there's obviously some love still there. In the third verse, she expresses that she knows John is still in pain over the breakup, but it's for the better in the long run, writing, All I want is to see you smile if it takes just a little while. I know you don't believe it's true. I never meant any harm to you. The song has been associated with Bill Clinton since he famously used it as his campaign theme when he ran for president in 1992. He was able to convince the band members to get back together for a one-off performance at his inaugural ball. Fleetwood Mac had been broken up for 10 years by this time. The members hadn't been speaking together, but they got back to perform just one song, Don't Stop. I find it just a little bit funny there's a little subtext of Don't Stop being paired to Bill Clinton. Clinton is obviously known for not being the most faithful husband to his wife, and Don't Stop is a song about divorce that came off the heels of Christine having an affair with a band's lighting director. I mean, the song even has the lyrics, Why not think about the time to come and not about the things that you've done? Maybe a good line for Bill Clinton. Anyway, Don't Stop is driven by a simple shuffle between Mick and John on the bass and drums. 
Producer Ken Kaye has said that Christine wasn't that crazy about the song until she came up with the idea to make it a duet between her and Lindsay. Lindsay and Christine go back and forth in the middle of vocal lines, and it sounds seamless. It's a testament to both singers and their ranges. The dynamic between Lindsay and Stevie always gets talked about, but Don't Stop is an example of the chemistry between him and Christine. In an interview, Lindsay explained it, saying, quote, Christine and I somehow had a common foundation, even though she was trained and I was not, and even though her background was in the blues, we had a very similar musical sense, a very similar melodic sense in many ways, so that we could jam on guitar and piano, and it would just spark off. She would play around me, and I would play around her. Don't Stop has since been one of their most enduring hits, peaking at number three on the Billboard Singles chart, and a staple of their live show ever since. Many years after the recording of Rumors, the members of Fleetwood Mac were finally speaking to each other again after a long hiatus. After years of pushing through, the drama of their personal lives and the subsequent solo projects some of the members took on after the success of Rumors got to be too much. The Rumors-era lineup had been broken up for more than a decade, but time proved to be a healer of those wounds. By 1997, the members seemed to have matured enough to put those personal issues aside. When discussing getting back together full-time, Christine said she would rejoin, but on one condition, that she didn't have to play the track Songbird live anymore. Puzzled, John asked Christine why. For years, it had been a staple as their final song of the night in their live show. Christine responded simply, because I don't want to cry anymore. Surprised by her answer, John said, you cry too? Songbird is one of four Christine's songs on the album, but it's quite a bit different from the others. Everybody had gone home from the Sausalito studio one day, except Christine and producer Ken Kaye. Christine just sat at the piano and started noodling around and playing something she had come up with the night before. It was a simple piano ballad, and it was beautiful. It came out of nowhere and came pretty easy, as Christine explained in a magazine interview, saying, quote, Stevie and I were in a condominium block, and the boys were all in the Sausalito record plant house, raving with girls and booze and everything. I had a little transistorized electric piano next to my bed, and I woke up one night at about 3.30am and started playing it. I had all, words, melody, chords, in about 30 minutes. It was like a gift from the angels, but I had no way to record it. I thought I'm never going to remember this, so I went back to bed and couldn't sleep. I wrote the words down quickly, and the next day I went into the studio shaking like a leaf because I knew it was something special. They got the song on the tape in that session, but there was just something not right about the finished product. It was this beautiful little ballad, but it sounded stiff and lacked any personality. Producer Ken Kaye got the idea to record the song in a large concert hall, and maybe that would give it more ambience and a live feel. Lucky for them, the Zellerback Auditorium in Berkeley, California was open, and so they loaded up all the recording equipment and set up shop in this new space for a day. Before Christine arrived at the auditorium, Kaye arranged for the empty hall to be completely blacked out from the lights besides a spotlight on a bouquet of roses on the grand piano. Christine nearly broke into tears when she saw it, and it set the vibe for the recording session that day. Because of the difficulty of recording the vocals and piano in one take, the session went well into the wee hours of the next morning. They decided to go with Lindsay playing acoustic guitar in the background, mostly to keep tempo. They toyed with the idea of adding a solo or a bass part, but it never matched the beauty of just Christine and her piano with a little acoustic guitar in the background. The lyrics in the song follow the themes of self-sacrifice and love, and maybe a little bit similar to one of the themes in another of Christine's songs on the album in Oh Daddy and her lack of self-worth. 
The song opens up as if it was just another love song with the lyrics, For you, there'll be no more crying. For you, the sun will be shining. And I feel that when I'm with you, it's all right. I know it's right. But later in the chorus and the bridge, the message becomes a little more clearer. Christine is in love with this person, but maybe the feeling isn't mutual. Yet the lack of reciprocity is causing her to love him even more, with the lyrics, And the songbirds are singing like they know the score. And I love you, I love you, I love you, like never before. And I wish you all the love in the world, but most of all, I wish it for myself. That last line is almost Christine expressing a hint of optimism, like she's saying it's okay this other person doesn't love me the way I love him. I'll carry on and find someone else. Cut to the 20-year anniversary of the release of Rumors, and Songbird proved to be too much of a fan favorite for Christine to hold her ground on a refusal to play it live. The band was now back together and planning a tour. Songbird ended up being on the set list, and Christine and John would have to endure their tears every night. The tour titled The Dance would end up being one of the most successful tours in music history. Selecting an opening track to any album is challenging. An opening song needs to set the tone of the album as a whole, but it needs to be catchy enough to grab the listener in, to set the mood. Well, in Rumors, there's no shortage of mood. There's heartbreak, there's turmoil, there's anger, but there's also optimism and love. Combine all of those with the catchiness of a pop song, and you get what would wind up being the opening track to Rumors. It's Lindsay Buckingham's Secondhand News. The song opens up with the lyrics, I know there's nothing to say, someone has taken my place. That could really be an ethos for the album as a whole, and what everyone was going through at the time. It's very similar in theme to another one of Lindsay's songs on the album, Never Going Back Again. Lindsay lures in the listener with this really uplifting and happy-sounding song. The music is happy, but the lyrics are quite bitter. The opening line is an acceptance from Lindsay that Stevie has moved on. Somebody has taken his place as her lover. He follows up that opening line with, When times go bad, when times go rough, won't you lay me down in the tall grass and let me do my stuff? It's Lindsay probably saying that their on-again, off-again relationship needs to stop dead in its tracks. When she starts to feel lonely again, Lindsay doesn't want Stevie to take him back, only to break it off again. He wants her to let him go, to move on, to let him do his stuff. It sounds optimistic, until the third verse, when Lindsay's tone starts to take on more of a bitter mood, with his saying, One thing I think you should know, I ain't gonna miss you when you go. Been down so long, I've been tossed around enough. In the chorus, Lindsay contrasts that bitter message of the lyrics and uses an old jazz technique with his vocals called a scat. Essentially, it's a vocal improvisation sounding more like random noises and nonsense rather than any actual words. The noises accentuate the music, and it's interesting that Lindsay uses it over and over again in the song about heartbreak and moving on after a breakup. Because the lyrics were so bitter, Lindsay felt he needed to hide it from Stevie for as long as possible. It frustrated Stevie. She didn't play any instruments and liked to use that extra time in the studio to work on vocals and harmonies. But Lindsay kept it from her until essentially they pressed record on the vocal take. So Stevie would sit there, bored out of her mind, while Lindsay would explain the song to Christine, John, and Mick on their instruments. Lindsay just wanted to avoid the awkwardness of the message in those lyrics for as long as he could get away with it. Plus, he knew Stevie hated it when he'd get so literal in his lyrics. That's one of the biggest differences in Stevie and Lindsay's songwriting, the lyrics being literal or more of a metaphor. Lindsay's You Can Go Your Own Way to Stevie's Thunder Only Happens When It's Raining. Lindsay had a Scottish-Irish folk sound in his head while recording Secondhand News. With that in mind, they began recording it with a march time on the snare drum with brushes. But Lindsay still wanted the pop element in it. Inspired by the song Jive Talkin' by the Bee Gees, a massive hit at the time, 
Lindsay wanted to give the rhythm more of a chugging along sound, more of a disco groove. So he accented the drums with a tapping of chairs that were in the studio. He simply got a mic and recorded himself hitting the studio chairs with drumsticks to the beat of the song. Producer Ken Kaye says that Lindsay really pissed John off while recording this song as well, saying, quote, Originally, John McVie had an amazing, flowing, and melodic bass part. Lindsay had a problem with that. It took him a while, but eventually, while John was on vacation, he put down his own bass line, one that was very simple, just quarter notes. It worked, though. Lindsay had a grand plan in his head, and he got his way. That was the start of him really calling the shots. It became a my way or the highway thing with him. In 1977, artists and producers really had to keep in mind the physical limitations of releasing an album. The record would be pressed on vinyl, meaning 22 minutes of music per each side of the physical record. If you wanted more, you'd have to sacrifice the quality of the music or go to a double album, which would significantly increase costs. Artists now don't really have to worry about that in the digital age, but it was something that shaped the music industry back then and shaped the way artists would look at recording an album. It was nearing the end of the recording side of things for Fleetwood Mac and what would eventually be rumors. The band was exhausted from putting their heart and soul into this project over the last six months, putting business ahead of their personal issues, all while indulging in the 70s culture of drugs and excess day in and day out. The band needed one more song for the record, and Stevie had come up with a beautiful, deep-meaning track called Silver Springs. It was another breakup song, no real shocker there, and a sad one at that. It was clearly the strongest song they had available to close out the album. The only problem was, it was eight plus minutes long. Stevie was inspired to write this song all the way back when her and Lindsay were still a couple and in their own band together, Buckingham Knicks. They were touring the country and driving through a Maryland town called Silver Spring. Stevie loved the town's name and took note of it, romanticizing the fairy tale place it could be. You could be my Silver Springs was a symbolic picture of what Lindsay could have been to Stevie from her perspective. Instead, she wrote it about that romantic potential and how it fell to pieces. While Dreams was written as a contemplation of Stevie and Lindsay's breakup, Silver Springs was a condemnation of it, especially of Lindsay personally, of his inability to let her love him. She paints a pretty nice picture about that potential in the first verse, writing, You could be my silver spring, blue-green colors flashing. I would be your only dream, your autumn ocean crashing. I mean, what great visuals. Again, proof of Stevie's metaphor way of writing lyrics. But then in the second verse, Stevie writes a twist in the story, moving away from the beautiful relationship that was to the bitter breakup that it actually is now and talking about the new woman Lindsay has found. She sings about the story she makes up in her head about never loving him and him never loving her, but also admitting that it really isn't true, writing, So I begin not to love you. Turn around, see me running. I say I loved you years ago, but tell myself you never loved me. Don't say that she's pretty, and did you say that she loved you? Baby, I don't want to know. And then in the chorus, Time cast a spell on you, but you won't forget me. I know I could have loved you, but you would not let me. You can tell how much Stevie really loved this song in the power in her voice behind the vocals. Near the end of the song, she kicks her vocals into overdrive and really puts her heart and soul into the sadness and anger behind her lyrics. It was clearly the best produced and best engineered song they had in the running as the last song to put on the record. Its length was the issue, though. Producer Ken Kaye broke the news to her that they'd have to edit the 8-minute-plus-long song to fit into the album, and it devastated her. It broke her heart that part of the story would have to be cut out, but she knew it was strictly a business decision, so she pressed on. 
With tears running down her face, she sat with Kaye as they chopped up the song to its final runtime of 4 minutes and 33 seconds. The day after they edited the song down, everyone in the studio gathered around except Stevie. She phoned in and said she'd be taking the day off from working in the studio. With everyone there except her, they started talking about the album as a whole, the direction they wanted, the mood of the whole album, and if they were leaving anything off the table. The band members agreed they wanted equal representation on the album between the three songwriters, but they looked at Stevie's contributions with Silver Springs, and most of them were now sad ballads. They agreed that day that they needed a more up-tempo, pop-sounding song to round out the album, and a shorter song as well. Because they wanted equal representation, that meant that if they wanted to cut Silver Springs, they needed to replace it with another Stevie Nicks song. Lindsay said he knew the perfect song. It was one that he and Stevie had performed as Buckingham Nicks titled I Don't Want to Know. It was an easy song, a fast-paced, happy-sounding pop song, and more importantly, a duet with Lindsay and Stevie. With Stevie absent that day, the band recorded the track quickly in about an hour and a half, but they knew they still needed Stevie on board, and were now dreading breaking the news to her the next day. The rest of the band had a meeting and decided it would be best for Mick to break the news to her that they would be cutting Silver Springs out. As soon as Stevie arrived at the studio the next day, Mick took her to the parking lot outside and broke the news. Stevie would later say in an interview that Mick told her that there's a lot of reasons Silver Springs is being removed, but mostly because it's just too long and that the band thinks there's another one of her songs that's better, saying, quote, Before I started to get upset about Silver Springs, I said, what other song? And he said, a song called I Don't Want to Know. And I said, but I don't want that song on the record. And he said, well, then don't sing it. And then I started to scream bloody murder and probably said every horribly mean thing that you could possibly say to another human being and walked back in the studio completely flipped out. I said, well, I'm not going to sing I Don't Want to Know. I'm one-fifth of this band. And they said, you can either A, take a hike, or B, you better go out there and sing I Don't Want to Know, or you're only going to have two songs on the record. And so basically, with a gun to my head, I went out and sang I Don't Want to Know. She recorded the vocals that day in about two or three takes, and it matched perfectly as a duet with Lindsay's vocals he recorded the day before, a testament to that musical chemistry they had. Stevie would later say that if Silver Springs had to be replaced, she was happy it was with I Don't Want to Know. Stevie really liked the Everly Brothers' influence on the harmonies with Lindsay, and had a lot of fun singing it with him live. I Don't Want to Know is much different than Silver Springs. It has an up-tempo pop sound to it, almost like a little country flavor to it, and probably a large part of it replacing the sad song that was Silver Springs was its happy sound and optimism in the lyrics. Stevie wrote it about Lindsay, but wrote it at a time when they were still together as a couple. The lyrics are about hope, hope that both her and Lindsay can find the love they're looking for, whether it was with each other or not. In the chorus, she writes, I don't want to know the reasons why love keeps right on walking on down the line. I don't want to stand between you and love, honey. I just want you to feel fine. Stevie wrote this when they were still in Buckingham and Nick's together, and still technically a couple, but I think Stevie could see the writing on the wall a little bit in terms of how long this relationship really could last. They definitely had an on-again, off-again relationship, and you see it written in this song. The song is about the confusion felt when you know you should end the relationship, but also still feel a deep connection with the other person. It was as the band grinded out the issue of what songs would end up on the final cut of the album that another issue seemed to resolve itself quite easily. They were still a few months away from the release of the album when John had the idea of what to name it. Before the recording of Rumors, Fleetwood Mac saw the spotlight being shined on them after the release of their previous self-titled album. 
It brought them success they never could have imagined, and with it, the paparazzi and press. Of course, with the relationships within the band, the press had a field day with Fleetwood Mac, and the members started to see false story after false story being written, and a lot of them about their personal lives. Christine McVie was reported to be in the hospital with a serious illness, while Buckingham and Nix were declared the parents of Fleetwood's daughter Lucy. The press also wrote about the relationship status of Stevie with numerous rock musicians, more infamously Don Henley of the Eagles, and also a rumored return of original Fleetwood Mac members for a 10th anniversary tour. It really took a toll on the band. In a magazine interview after the album's release, Christine talked about that attention and how it influenced the music, and eventually the album's title, saying, quote, The outcome of the various separations and emotional upheavals in the band that caused so many rumors are in the songs. We weren't aware of it at the time, but when we listened to the songs together, we realized they were telling little stories. We were looking for a good name for the album that would encompass all that, and the feeling the band had given up. And I believe it was John one day who said we should just call it Rumors. John also suggested they spell it the English way with an O-U instead of just the American O-way. It's always hard to come up with an album name, especially one that's not after a prominent song off the album, and the rest of the band loved it. It wasn't named after a song, yet it captured the entire vibe of the album. It was nice to have one less thing to take care of too, and which was already a lengthy process of trying to produce. When it came to the cover, the band hired a photographer named Herbie Worthington, who had shot the cover of their previous album. Herbie had a vision for an artistic cover, similar to their last album, and to do a cover shoot with all of the members. Once they got the proofs back, they all agreed which one was best, but some of them were a little pissed because they wanted to be on the cover. Lindsay was upset, but ultimately agreed that the now iconic shot of Stevie and Mick was the best one. Both of them are wearing their normal stage garb, possibly representing a time and era in the past. One aspect of the cover that might reflect the band's sense of humor is the two little balls dangling below Mick's crotch. The balls were already a part of his stage getup as he dangled them on his drums. Mick got them when Fleetwood Mac were in their formative years, stealing them from a club bathroom they were playing at during that time. There's a story that comes from producer Ken Kaye and his experience meeting the members of Fleetwood Mac and settling in for their first few days of recording. It was February of 1976, and Kaye was a young producer who had barely any experience in the industry. He was hired by Fleetwood Mac after the members were impressed at his job remastering a track from their previous album, Rhiannon. So the band members slowly file into the studio in Sausalito. They meet Kaye and are eager and excited to start the process. Kaye was there early to set the equipment up and play around to make sure everything was good. So he tells Mick to start playing the drums while he dials in the sound from the control room. Mick sits down and plays around the kit for a while. There's just one problem. The drums sound like absolute garbage. And as any producer knows, the drums are the center of recording any rock album. Everything that came out of the drums and through the microphones sounded weak. The soundproofing of the studio was doing its job too well. It was sucking any of the life away from the sound. Kaye tried moving the equipment around, changing microphone positions, Mick messed with the drum tuning, but nothing worked. This went on for five days, five whole excruciating days, as the band members sat around patiently waiting to get a start on the project. Finally, with the band on their last limb, Kaye realized that you can't just listen to one instrument to tell how the room and the microphones sound. He did the opposite of what he was trained to do as a producer. Instead of dialing in the sound instrument by instrument, he got the whole band in the studio at the same time. Kaye was out of ideas and needed to do something drastic to regain the band's confidence in him. 
So the band started playing a song, a Christine song she had written called Keep Me There. And now that they were all playing together and not just focused in on the drums, Kaye could see how the instruments sounded as a whole. He could see that the room was designed for a whole band, not for individual tracking. It took about five minutes before they were able to hit record, and what happened next was magic. The band played the early workings of this Christine song from top to bottom twice over, each time sounding better. During the second take, the band discovered a musical tension that had developed where the song was originally intended to end. So instead of ending it this time around, John played this interesting bass line he had previously come up with, and then Christine and Lindsay improvised and played off each other for the rest of the three minutes. Now, almost trembling with excitement, the band went into their third take. The song felt great, and about halfway through, the band got even more inventive, jamming and loosening up. They could feel the chemistry. As soon as the tape stopped, the producers hit the talkback button from the control room and excitedly said, guys, you've got to come in and hear this. The band piled into the control room and they sat in silence listening back to what they just recorded. When it was over, everyone jumped to their feet, dancing and high-fiving. It was great and they all knew it. This Christine song would eventually turn into the chain. And although it would go through many more incarnations, this moment early on in the recording studio marked a sign that there would be something special with this record. This was the kickoff to the recording of Rumors, and maybe it started to seep into the band that if they fight through their individual pain, something great might come out of it. The chain is described almost like a band manifesto for Fleetwood Mac. The way the song came together and the lyrics within the song perfectly describe what the band was going through at the time. Plus, it's the only song off of Rumors to give songwriting credits to all five members. In many ways, the chain is Fleetwood Mac, and more specifically, Fleetwood Mac at this point in their career. The chain is musically pretty dark and heavy with tension. It opens on a guitar lick Lindsay recycled from their Buckingham Nicks album on a song called Lola My Love. The vocals then smash through with Christine, Stevie, and Lindsay harmonizing over each other, just as they have done all throughout Rumors, giving the band that distinctive Fleetwood Mac sound. The lyrics were inspired by a song Stevie had recorded as a demo. It was another Stevie song written about her frustrations with being in a relationship with Lindsay and the pain of the breakup. But by the time they recorded the finished product, the lyrics went through many different incarnations to make it more vague, but still with hints of frustration. At one point in recording, in the verses, the song hangs on these tense emotions, writing, Listen to the wind blow, watch the sun rise, run in the shadows, damn your love, damn your lies, break the silence, damn the dark, damn the light. The chorus then hints at what's to come in the outro, and if you don't love me now, you will never love me again, I can still hear you saying you would never break the chain. And then all the tension is released, and it goes into this build-up, an angry build-up, between the steady beat of the drums and one of the most iconic bass riffs of all time. Originally, John and Mick had come up with his parts in that discarded Christine McVie song called Keep Me There, the song the band originally recorded in that first session of the Sausalito studio all the way back in February of 76. The band sat on Keep Me There for their whole time recording, and they all knew it needed something. It just wasn't up to snuff compared to the rest of their songs. Cut to eight months later, with the recording of Rumors all but wrapped up, Lindsay came through the studio doors one day, rubbing his hands together with a smile on his face. He announced that he had an idea to save Keep Me There. He was the one that came up with a plan to make the drastic edits. 
to keep this incredible John McVie bass ending, but to rewrite the verses inspired from Stevie's original The Chain, over top of Lindsay and Stevie's old Buckingham Nicks guitar riff. But he wanted the verses sparse, simple lyrics with a three-part harmony as the main focus and melody. They'd keep the ending they already recorded, and do what was called modular recording, splicing together different tape recordings, sort of like a literal copy and pasting, back when you couldn't do it on a computer in Pro Tools like you can now. The Beach Boys made it famous on the song Good Vibrations, and I don't think it was a coincidence that Lindsay was a huge Beach Boys fan. And it's that bass riff that everyone remembers. It lays the foundation for the rest of the outro. The band eventually kicks in, and the song turns into a chaotic guitar solo, almost like a release of the frustration and emotion that the band is experiencing. As the solo progresses, the vocals come back in, and two phrases are repeated to close the song. The thesis of the song, the album, and maybe the band. Singing, chain, keep us together, run in the shadow. Chain, keep us together, run in the shadow. The chain is what's holding the band together, the ties that bind them, the musical chemistry, the sum bigger than all of its parts. But the dark undercurrent beneath all that, the pain and suffering they individually have to endure through all of it, the media pressure, the breakups, the jealousy, the tensions, the shadows that cast a dark cloud over them. But despite all that, the chain is keeping them together and have brought them to this point. Even if the relationships are toxic, they are still chained to each other for the sake of the band and for the art it produces. Stemming from three different songs and contributions from all five members, it was almost poetic that the chain was the last song the band worked on, bringing them all back together after all that angst nine months after they came up with the original idea to kick off the recording of Rumors. Rumors was released on February 4th, 1977, almost a full year since they first got to the Sausalito record plant to begin recording. Right after its release, Buckingham wasn't actually convinced that they had a hit on their hands at all. He said at the time, quote, I was worried that Side 2 had no continuity. I thought we'd done the best we could, but the album was trailing off and lacked that extra song we needed. I really wasn't aware of the compelling drama it had, and I remember certain people being very negative about rumors. We're all so insecure, and I really didn't know. In punk rock's so-called Year Zero, Rumors would remain on the U.S. album charts for 134 weeks, 31 of those at the golden number one. It would remain in the top 100 chart in Britain for the next eight years. The record sold 10 million in its first year, and at its height in America was going platinum, also known as 1 million sales, every 30 days. It won the Grammy for Album of the Year, and has since been sold over 40 million times worldwide, making it one of the best-selling albums of all time. Mick has since said, quote, That's the most important album we ever made because it allowed this band Fleetwood Mac to continue for years and years and years after it. Lindsay Buckingham's take, quote, You can look at rumors and say, Well, the album is bright and it's clean and it's sunny, but everything underneath is so dark and murky. What was going on between us created a resonance that goes beyond the music itself. You had these dialogues shooting back and forth about what was going on between us, and we were chronicling every nuance of it. We had to play the hand out, and people found it riveting. It wasn't a press creation. It was all true, and we couldn't suppress it. The built-in drama cannot be underplayed as a springboard to that album's success. 
Stevie Nicks puts it even more succinctly. Quote, if you took out all the bad stuff in the band, the songs wouldn't have happened. There simply wouldn't have been a rumors if everything had been fabulous. And Christine, quote, you can't imagine five more different people than this particular five. And I mean, maybe that's part of the magic of it. There's some kind of glue gluing us together, and I think it's very simply just called chemistry. With everything going on, why did the possibility of breaking up seem so foreign? How did the members not get close to tearing it all apart? How was it not even discussed? Everyone was so fragile, you would think the idea of getting the hell away seemed pretty attractive. That driving energy of the band as a whole must have been strong. Mick said in an interview years later, quote, We're a bunch of people before we're a bunch of musicians. What happened was that all five of us were going through exactly the same problem at the very same time. Only in Fleetwood Mac could that happen. So there we all were, trying to put down the basic backing tracks and all feeling so desperately unhappy with life. But somehow we created a mutual bond. We could all relate to each other's desperation. Despite ourselves, we didn't lose contact. It wasn't as though there wasn't anyone else we could turn to. Strange as it might sound, we had one another. So we went through shit to get to the point where we could still live and communicate as friends. It's important to remember that as Rumors was being recorded, their previous White Album was still making headway, so much so that the record company got them to continue promoting it with little mini-tours in between the Rumors sessions. It's funny how that influx of success can blind you from the pain in your personal life. With Rumors, Fleetwood Mac blurred the distinction between art and life. The creative process of the album got all mixed up with the disintegration of the musicians' romantic relationships. It was the musical soap opera that appealed to so many people. A lot of times, music fans want more than just the music. They want a story. If you were cynical, you could call it a gimmick, something to hook in more than just the average music fan. But it wasn't designed by a PR person. Fleetwood Mac had the unique ability to be all things to all people. They were three English rockers and two Americans. They were a mixed gender band that had blues roots and pop savvy. It was a magical combination that fortified itself with rumors. By ignoring and burning through the personal tragedies and turmoil, sacrificing the connections that each band member lost, the members of Fleetwood Mac created one of the greatest rock and roll albums in history. <laughs> Thanks again, guys, for listening and bearing with me as I navigate through how I want to produce the podcast. If you listen to the first one, the three-part series on Blood Sugar Sex Magic, you'll notice it's a bit different from this one on Rumors. I'm still trying to figure out how I want to do this, how to produce them quicker, how I want to tell the story, how much background to give from before the album, how much to dive into the lyrics, you know, that kind of stuff. So thanks again for listening. If you want to keep up to date on all things Beyond the Beats, be sure to follow my Instagram page. Also, I do have a YouTube channel where I condense individual stories from my podcast into short video form, so you can subscribe on there as well. And as always, any feedback is welcome on those channels. So thanks again.